One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A colossal wooden airplane built by millionaire aviator Howard Hughes is the heart of an engineering mystery. The government didn't believe that it would actually fly. A brazen art heist baffles investigators and leaves a great museum with empty frames and unanswered questions. You'd be hard-pressed to find a mystery that's bigger than this one. And a much-loved plaything whose origins spring from the darkest days of war. This was one of those classic eureka moments. Everyone wants to Across the United States, in the nation's most revered institutions, our celebrated history is on display. Wondrous treasures from the past, bizarre relics. But behind every amazing artifact, is another tale to be told and a secret waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. McMinnville, Oregon. Inside a giant airplane hangar, the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum houses dozens of unique aircraft that tell the story of our nation's history and flight. And this museum centerpiece is a flying machine whose size and reputation dwarfs all others. Its tail is bigger than a seven-story building. Eight 3,000-horsepower engines were needed to propel it. But this astonishing aircraft isn't made of metal. This is the largest aircraft to be built almost entirely from wood. It is the H-4 Hercules, better known as the Spruce Goose. From wingtip to wingtip of the Spruce Goose, it's 319 feet. So if we put it on a 50-yard line in a football field, the wings would hit both end zones. 
Aaron Willison is the education coordinator at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. And it's her job to explain to visitors just how extraordinary this aircraft is. Probably the best part of working here is seeing the amazement on the kids' faces when they come in and they're just like, wow, that is so cool. Irreverently dubbed the Spruce Goose by its detractors, this massive machine is actually made of birch. It was commissioned as a cargo plane by the U.S. military in the 1940s and could hold up to two armored tanks or 750 soldiers. But this one-of-a-kind aircraft never flew a single mission. In fact, many believed it couldn't fly at all. So why was it built? The story starts over 60 years ago in one of the worst crises of the Second World War. 1941. World War II is raging and the U.S. military has a problem. They are losing countless transatlantic supply ships to German U-boat attacks, greatly affecting the Allies' ability to fight the war in Europe. The military needs a safer way to transport huge numbers of soldiers and goods across the Atlantic. They latch on to an idea to build massive cargo aircraft of a size never before attempted that would bypass the threat on the sea by taking military transports into the air. And renowned aviator and aircraft engineer Howard Hughes steps forward as the man for the job. Howard Hughes was a brilliant aircraft designer. He was eccentric, to say the least. He was always pushing the envelope, trying to go faster, trying to go higher, trying to go farther. But the project comes with one crucial condition. One of their stipulations was that they could not use any metal at all because they needed the metal for the war effort. So Hughes makes an unprecedented decision to build the 218 by 319 foot flying cargo ship from wood. Most airplanes in between World War I and World War II were made out of wood, but they were a lot smaller. People thought Howard Hughes was crazy building this airplane out of wood. But Hughes will not be deterred. He attacks the project with the full force of his obsessive genius, using innovative techniques to bend and glue planks of birch plywood onto the frame of the 142-ton behemoth. The Spruce Goose is a marvel of engineering. This monstrous airplane is essentially wood just glued together. But this revolutionary design takes four years and an extraordinary $25 million to perfect. What ended up happening, because Howard Hughes was a perfectionist, every little detail, all the steps had to go through him. It delayed the project immensely. By the time the plane is actually finished, World War II is over, and the project is well over budget. The government wanted to know why they had, he had used their money and not finished the airplane during the wartime effort. They call a series of Senate hearings to take Hughes to task for the overruns. And I have stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back, and I mean it. But Hughes's detractors weren't just critical of management of the project. Many doubted that this huge wooden aircraft would ever take to the skies. The government didn't believe that it would actually fly. The only way for Hughes to justify the delays and prove his critics wrong is to test the plane. 
A plane so surrounded by controversy that its tests are a headline drama. The $25 million flying boat. Many asked, would the giant ever fly? November 2nd, 1947, Long Beach Harbor, California. Howard Hughes is at the helm of the Spruce Goose, preparing for a series of taxi tests intended to demonstrate just the aircraft's engines and steering capacity. No one suspects that Hughes is going to use these tests to see if the Spruce Goose will fly. On the third taxi test, he asked for flaps down, and that was an indication he was going to try to fly the airplane. It's the moment of truth. Will the Spruce Goose lift off? 200 tons are airborne, 70 feet off the water. She stays for a mile. $23 million worth of airplane has answered a lot of committee questions. It can fly. It was complete shock and surprise because no one believed that it would actually fly, and Howard Hughes proved them all wrong. But surprisingly, the amazing plane's first flight is also its last. Hughes buys the aircraft back from the government and stores it out of sight at a cost of $1 million a year until his death 33 years later. So why did it never fly again? There was speculation on the day that it flew that Howard Hughes heard the tail crack a little bit, which would possibly mean that the tail could fall off. Whether or not the plane could fly for a sustained period of time remains a mystery. What is certain is that the war was over. The cargo capacity of the Spruce Goose was no longer needed, and Hughes had cleared his name. While the Spruce Goose failed to fulfill its wartime mission, its successful flight did send a message that resonates to this day. The Spruce Goose is inspiring because it proves what someone can do when they have a dream and when they don't give up, because Howard Hughes never did give up. And today, Howard Hughes' massive marvel of aeronautical engineering continues to inspire visitors at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. Over 2,000 miles away at the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois, a different kind of giant has raised a 67 million year old question. What was life like for the Tyrannosaurus Rex? Coming up on Mysteries at the Museum. Chicago, Illinois. Rising from the shores of Lake Michigan, this stunning metropolis is not only a hub of business and industry, it's also a center of science and culture. And the Field Museum of Natural History is its star attraction. Every year, over one million visitors pour through its doors. By far, most people come to see this. The remains of the largest Tyrannosaurus Rex ever found. When you walk up to the skeleton, you're sort of just impressed by the sheer size of the T-Rex. The skeleton measures 40 and a half feet from the end of its nose to the tip of its tail. And covered in flesh, muscle, and fat, this T-Rex would have weighed over six tons. Peter Makovicki, the museum's curator of dinosaurs, is an expert on these prehistoric predators. Tyrannosaurus rex means tyrant lizard king. T-Rex was without a doubt the top meat-eating animal in its ecosystem. There was nothing that even approached it in size. 
This particular specimen, nicknamed Sue, was discovered by a volunteer geologist named Sue Hendrickson in South Dakota in 1990. On display at the Field Museum since 2000, this skeleton is exceptional not just for its enormous size, but because when it was found, it was almost entirely complete. Well, the discovery of Sue has really sort of been a landmark in the study of T-Rex. We're missing very little of that skeleton. And because of her completeness, she actually serves as this uh, Rosetta Stone we can actually study her and the biology of T-Rex in ways that we can't do for any other specimen. This makes Sue the key piece of evidence in unraveling a mystery that has puzzled scientists since the very first T-Rex fossil was discovered back in 1902. What was life like for the world's largest prehistoric predator? 67 million years ago, T-Rex is the undisputed king of the prehistoric food chain. But what was its life really like? Did it do battle with other predators? Did these animals live into old age? And how did they eventually die? The answer to these age-old questions lie locked inside the amazing skeleton on display at the Field Museum. Some of the traits we see in the skeleton of Sue sort of tell the story of her life. For example, on the other side of her body, on the right side, we have a series of three ribs that have been broken and rehealed from a bad uh, injury. This indicates that even though she was at the top of the food chain, life for Sue was not easy. As one of my colleagues likes to say, she's a bit of a train wreck. And one of the reasons probably is T-Rex just had a very rough and tumble lifestyle. They were the top predators and as we know from living predators today, it's, it's not an easy lifestyle. There are a lot of injuries incurred. Sue's vertebrae are so delicate that they have been replaced by plaster castings in the museum display. But a close examination of the original bones reveals another surprise. Her scars weren't just caused by the hard knocks of life as a carnivore. It seems she also suffered from the afflictions of old age. So these are two of Sue's tail vertebrae that have actually fused together. In between them, they're covered by this huge mass of very gnarly looking bone. We think this looks very much like arthritis due to both a combination of injury and old age. This begs the question, exactly how old was this T-Rex? Turns out that's something we can figure out by looking at growth structures in their bones. Like tree stumps, Dinosaur bones are marked by annual growth rings. By examining specially prepared cross-sections of one of Sue's rib bones, scientists can actually count these rings and calculate Sue's age. Given these counts, we have her pegged at being 28 years old, give or take a year. At 28, Sue would have been almost at the end of the natural lifespan of a T-Rex. T-Rex was simply not a very long-lived animal. 30 years was probably very close to the maximum lifespan it would have had. All these findings paint a picture of a life punctuated by predatory violence, illness, and injury. But a mystery remains. Sue appears to have survived her injuries and lived to a ripe old age of 28. So what ultimately killed this gigantic and deadly predator 
leaving her remains perfectly intact to be discovered 67 million years later? The evidence points to an unlikely suspect. She has a series of openings or holes towards the back of her jaw. And astonishingly, these small holes are very possibly the cause of Sue's death. We think these were caused by some type of infection, perhaps a fungus or a parasite. And any prolonged, painful affliction affecting Sue's jaws would have made it almost impossible for her to eat. This means that this six-ton, 13-foot-high, battle-scarred monster may have simply starved to death. The real fantastic thing about having a complete skeleton that is as well-preserved as Sue's is that we can sort of get a glimpse of what the life of one particular T-Rex might have been like. While scientists like Makovicki continue to examine the evidence locked inside this skeleton to recreate the prehistoric life of T-Rex, visitors who want their own glimpse 67 million years into the past need only visit the Field Museum in Chicago to take in the awesome spectacle of Sue. While Sue's skeleton paints a picture of a prehistoric life, not far from Chicago in Canton, Ohio, a simple garment with a perplexing imperfection reveals a mystery behind a tragic and untimely presidential death. The story unfolds next on Mysteries at the Museum. Canton, Ohio. Over 100 years ago, President William McKinley called this Midwestern city home. Today, it houses a museum dedicated to his life and work as the 25th President of the United States. It is the William McKinley Presidential Library and Museum. McKinley is best known as a progressive president who served at the dawn of the 20th century. But among the museum's mementos detailing this time, there rests a far more intimate artifact. A nightshirt once worn by McKinley that bears a mysterious mark, a strange tear down its back. The tear is relatively neat and straight, but doesn't appear to be cut. It appears to have possibly been torn. How did this tear come to be? And what is the significance of this simple garment? These answers lie within the mystery of President McKinley's final moments, a tragic demise that changed the history of the presidency. September 6, 1901. President McKinley and his wife, Ida, tour the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, a World's Fair with a groundbreaking display of the newest technologies of the day. Some of the highlights included electricity. There were 200,000 8-watt light bulbs on display. And of course, most people, electricity was brand new. But among the most eagerly anticipated exhibits is one of Thomas Edison's latest machines, a device that can peer through the human body. It is the X-ray machine. As McKinley tours the exhibits, he is unaware that lurking in the crowd is his murderer, a staunch anarchist named Leon Cholgosh. At precisely 4.07 p.m., McKinley is greeting a line of well-wishers when he extends his hand to Cholgosh, whose right hand is bandaged with a handkerchief. The security around McKinley was lax by today's standards. 
Today, it would be virtually impossible to get that close to the president. Concealed inside the handkerchief is a deadly weapon, a 32 caliber Ivor revolver. The gun went off twice. The first bullet struck the president between the second and third rib. The second bullet went into the abdomen and pierced the stomach twice. While the shooter is taken into police custody, the president is rushed into the Expo's emergency hospital. Almost immediately, the medical team is beset by challenges. The first bullet comes out easily, but the second bullet has pierced the president's stomach and is lodged somewhere in the muscles of his lower back. The depth of the wound, combined with the president's sizable girth, make it almost impossible to locate. McKinley's doctors face a difficult decision. Continue searching for the second bullet and risk injuring the president further, or leave the bullet and hope that it does not cause a lethal infection. They opt to stitch his wounds and leave the bullet inside the president. Ironically, all the while, Thomas Edison's x-ray machine, a new technology with the potential to find the bullet, is readily available. Edison contacted the medical team and offered the use of his x-ray machine, which was on display at the Pan American Exposition. But McKinley's doctors do not want to take any unnecessary risks. It hadn't been extensively tested, and certainly they would not be interested in experimenting on the president of the United States. For the next few days, President McKinley lies recovering in bed dressed in his monogrammed nightshirt and appears to be making a full recovery. But seven days after the shooting, his condition suddenly deteriorates. Is this when McKinley's nightshirt is cut? We do believe that it had something to do with emergency procedures that might have occurred from surgery. What is certain is that at 2.15 a.m. on September 14, 1901, the 25th President of the United States dies from complications related to an assassin's bullet. The nation grieves deeply. But from this terrible tragedy, some good does come. The newly formed Secret Service is mandated to provide round-the-clock security for all sitting presidents. And over the next decade, use of the x-ray machine becomes commonplace in the nation's hospitals. And the last reminder of what happened during McKinley's final hours is this monogrammed nightshirt with a tear along the back. Stored here at the William McKinley Presidential Library and Museum in Canton, Ohio. It is a testament to a life that might have been saved by the technology of a modern era that this president helped usher in. Almost 90 years later in Boston, another shocking crime would take place. This one would leave no victims, only four empty picture frames and a mystery. Who was behind the biggest art heist in American history? Next on Mysteries at the Museum. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In Boston's upscale Back Bay neighborhood, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is a perennial favorite for art lovers. This mansion was once the opulent dwelling of a groundbreaking collector, the eponymous Isabella Stewart Gardner. In the late 19th and early 20th century, Gardner amassed one of the most valuable private art collections ever seen in this country. These works of art now make up the contents of the Gardner Museum. You can see a work by Michelangelo. You can see Rembrandt, Botticelli, Matisse. There's virtually no great master that you can't see here. But hanging amid these fantastic works of art is a surprising display. Four empty picture frames. Once the gilded guardians of treasured works of art, these frames now hang as symbolic reminders of a shocking crime and a 20-year-old hunt to find out who was behind the biggest art heist in U.S. history. March 17, 1990, 8 p.m. The Gardner Art Museum closes its doors for the night and the museum's two security guards begin their rounds. Five hours later, the guard stationed at the front entrance is alerted by a buzzing intercom at one of the museum's service doors. Exactly at 1.24 a.m., two police officers rang the buzzer and said that they were responding to a disturbance. The guard, almost reflexively, I guess, hit the buzzer. When the two officers enter the building, they begin acting strangely. One of the police officers tells the guard who's sitting at the desk... Uh, you look familiar to me. Uh, let me see your identification. He shows him the ID, and he says, there's a warrant out for your arrest. Come out from behind there. The bewildered guard complies, and the police immediately handcuff him. But when the second guard returns from his rounds, the police arrest him too. The other guard protests and says, why am I being arrested? There's no warrant out for me. When the police take both men to the museum basement, 
bind and gag them, it becomes devastatingly clear to the guards what's actually happening. Once the guards are subdued, the thieves inform the guards, gentlemen, this is a robbery. With the guards out of the way, the two thieves have nothing standing between them and one of the most valuable art collections in the country. As the museum's director of security, Anthony Amore has studied every move the thieves made on that fateful night. Right now we're entering the Dutch room on the second floor. Unfortunately, the first thing that you notice are empty frames that held the most valuable missing paintings in the world. The Dutch room houses some of the most expensive works in the gardener's collection. It is believed to be the first stop in the heist. It appears that they went for the storm on the Sea of Galilee first. The frame was taken from the wall, dropped to the floor, and they used a very sharp knife to cut the canvas from the frame. Targeting this famous painting by the 17th century Dutch master Rembrandt seems to suggest that the robbers were professional art thieves who knew exactly what they were after. Rembrandt's have been stolen an incredible number of times, and oftentimes because people think Rembrandt equals money, and I'll be able to ransom these back through insurance or sell them on the black market, Rembrandt is a very attractive target for art thieves. The thieves take a total of six artworks, including three Rembrandts, from the Dutch room before moving on. But surprisingly, the works of art they target next seem to totally contradict the theory that they were seasoned pros. We're now standing in the short gallery, and the items that are taken from this room are really off the beaten path. We're talking about five drawings by Degas. Drawings that happen to be some of the least valuable pieces in the entire museum. This would be a highly unusual move for professional art thieves, especially ones who aren't in a rush. From the time the thieves entered the museum till the time they left, 81 minutes elapsed, which is unprecedented in museum theft history by a long shot. So with almost an hour and a half to take anything they want from this priceless collection of over 2,500 objects, why did these thieves seek out five of the least valuable artworks in the museum? I can't imagine why a person who has 80 minutes in a museum would walk by a Botticelli, two Raphaels, to take five drawings. One possibility is that the thieves were in fact small-time crooks out of their league in the world of high-end art. Or could this strange behavior actually be a clue in this perplexing whodunit? The items taken from this room are so unusual that a lot of people think, well, this must be the key. This must be why they really came. Could these robbers actually be working to order? It's possible that some rich billionaire somewhere had this hankering for a specific painting and sent out a couple of cat burglars to go do this master crime. But to this day, no one knows for sure. All that is certain is that by the time the thieves finish their spree through the museum and the security guards are discovered at 8.15 the morning after the robbery, the unthinkable has happened. A grand total of 13 works of art, all together worth a staggering $300 million, have been lifted in the biggest art heist in U.S. history. 
And the two imposters who perpetrated the crime have disappeared without a trace. 20 years later, the case is still unsolved. You'd be hard-pressed to find a mystery that's bigger than this one because nobody can say with certainty that they know who did it or where they are today. Even a long-standing reward of $5 million has failed to turn up the robbers or the missing art. And for the staff and patrons of the Gardner Art Museum, this is the real tragedy behind this shocking crime. $5 million is the largest private reward ever offered for anything. And we are very eager to pay it, believe it or not, because we know that we have an obligation to make Mrs. Gardner's collection whole again. Until that day, these four gilded picture frames will hang empty in the Gardner Museum of Art in Boston, Massachusetts, as a reminder of the treasured works of art that were taken in the biggest and most brazen art heist in American history. 500 miles south in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a reminder of a very different sort lies locked away. It is a memento not of an audacious crime, but of a devastating tragedy one that stunned the nation over 120 years ago. Still to come on Mysteries at the Museum. Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Set in a river basin deep in the lush Allegheny Mountains, this small city of 20,000 is a living monument to the boom and bustle of America's industrial heyday. Established in the early 19th century, Johnstown exploded into a thriving coal and steel town within decades, becoming home to immigrants from all over the world who flocked to the city to man its mines and mills. Today, Johnstown has several museums dedicated to preserving its rich cultural and industrial heritage. One such museum, a century-old library, is host to a unique artifact from Johnstown's early days. It is a 19th-century brass pocket watch, a symbol of Johnstown's growing prosperity. Park ranger Doug Richardson has studied this artifact closely. Many people in Johnstown in 1889 had pocket watches like these. Made by Elgin Watches of Chicago, this hand-wound timepiece would have been a common accessory for men of the time. So why is it here? What role did this simple watch play in Johnstown's early history? The answer lies in the time frozen on the watch's face. 4-11. Moments after an unprecedented tragedy would scar Johnstown forever. May 31st, 1889, 7 a.m. A heavy rain that moved into Johnstown overnight is rapidly building into a powerful storm. For many living in this area, they had never witnessed such a rainstorm. By afternoon, the low-lying parts of town near the convergence of the Kanama and Stony Creek rivers are starting to flood. It had been a terrible winter and a terrible spring, so by the end of May, the ground just literally could not hold another drop of water. But a bigger problem is brewing 14 miles away, on a mountain ridge 450 feet above the city. The earthen dam holding back Lake Kanama is in serious distress. 
Water started to rise at least an inch every 10 minutes. On the face of the dam, there were some places where leaks were starting to form. Rebuilt on the site of an old reservoir to create a pleasure lake and country club for rich industrialists from Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, the South Fork Dam had long been a source of anxiety for area residents. When the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club bought the property, the dam had a big hole in it. It is commonly believed that the club had done a haphazard job of repairing this hole. And now, with record rainstorms overloading the lake, the poorly repaired dam can no longer bear the weight of the rising water. And water started to break away chunks of the structure that would start tumbling down the front. And then the hole just started getting bigger and bigger. At 310 on May 31st, 1889, the unthinkable happens. The dam collapses completely. Down the valley in Johnstown, residents, busy fighting back the swollen rivers, have no idea that 20 million tons of water traveling at 40 miles an hour are barreling towards them. And there's an elevation drop of over 400 feet. So almost every step along the way, the head of the flood became larger and more intense. And with each passing mile, the thundering wall of water picks up dirt, debris, rocks, and even metal. Now, only moments from striking Johnstown, the residents' only warning of what is heading their way is a bone-chilling rumble. Many recalled feeling as if what was coming upon them was the day of judgment that they had heard about in Sunday schools. When the flood finally reaches the center of town at 4.11 p.m., it is a 36-foot-high wall of wreckage and debris. And when it came into town, this one large wave split into three and started to cover the entire town. And as this debris came in contact with houses and buildings and barns, it just completely devastated and destroyed them. The only protection afforded the town is the stone rail bridge which remains standing. But its unmoving presence creates a bottleneck. And as the water washes past, bodies pile up against the stone barrier along with the debris from the town. When the waters recede and the casualties are counted, the death toll is astounding. Over 2,200 people are killed, including 90 whole families and 400 children under the age of 10. When word gets out about the devastation, the nation is stunned. Many people in the United States identified with the people of Johnstown, the steel workers, the railroaders, the coal miners, and they sent over $3.5 million in cash and goods to Johnstown. But despite this monumental outpouring of support from across the country, it takes over five months to restore basic services to the town and even longer to clean up the wreckage and recover the dead. One month into this gruesome process, rescuers enter the mangled remains of the general store. In the basement, they find the prostrate body of a local businessman, Mr. Andrew Young. Near his body, a shiny golden item catches their eye. It's his watch. Its hand stopped at 4.11, the exact moment when Mr. Young and his watch were swept beneath the waters of the devastating flood along with over 2,000 others. 
Over 120 years later, among the vast collections detailing the Johnstown Flood, these hands of time remain frozen. A haunting reminder of the tragedy that devastated a town, but brought the nation together in a show of support for those who lost everything in one of the worst flooding disasters in American history. 58 years later, America would be all consumed with another crisis, the Second World War. But out of this dark and devastating episode, an invention would be born, an object that would bring joy to millions for decades to come. The True Tale, up next on Mysteries at the Museum. Rochester, New York. Not far from the shores of Lake Ontario sits a museum dedicated solely to the study of play. Christopher Bench is the Vice President of Collections at the Strong National Museum of Play. The museum has a Hall of Fame, a tribute to toys that have become classics. But the artifacts aren't all fun and games. One item here, a childhood favorite, was actually conceived of during some of the darkest days of our history. From World War came a toy that we still play with today. Everyone wants the slinky. So how was the slinky an accidental byproduct of America's involvement in a global war? The story starts over 60 years ago. 1943, World War II is raging. At home, Americans are doing their part to develop and build products to help in the war effort. It's a massive effort that reaches from coast to coast. In a Philadelphia shipyard, an engineer is hard at work. He's been hired by the U.S. Navy to invent a stabilizing device for sensitive navigational instruments aboard its ships. A mechanical engineer in Philadelphia was looking for a solution to how to cushion maritime instruments from the kinds of vibration and action that the ocean brings. This engineer was a man named Richard James, who was convinced that a torsion spring was the answer to this wartime problem. But his research wasn't going well. None of his springs did the trick. None of them worked correctly. He failed dismally to find a solution to the problem, but he kept his springs on hand. James may not have solved the Navy's conundrum, but out of his apparent failure was born invention. And one day, in a classic moment of ingenuity and chance, he knocked one of the springs off the shelf above his desk. And lo and behold, it walked down on its own. Richard is captivated. This was one of those classic eureka moments. If it had been a cartoon, a light bulb would have gone on over his head. After pushing the coil off a stack of books a few more times and getting the same result, Richard knows it isn't a fluke. Fascinated by this walking spring, he takes it home to show his wife, Betty. She immediately suspects it could be an excellent toy. She was especially persuaded when they showed it to some of the neighborhood kids who loved it. The couple decides to make and market the springs as a children's toy. Their only problem? what to call this unusual slinking spring. 
Betty believed in it. She got out the dictionary. She leafed especially through those S pages of the dictionary. And the word that she seized on was none other than slinky. The revolutionary toy had a winning design, a name, and was ready to take post-war America by storm. Richard and Betty James decided to manufacture slinkies all on their own. And during the day, Richard would manufacture them. He'd bring them home to his wife, Betty, to package them. Just before Christmas 1945, they debuted the new toy at Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia. They gave him the opportunity to demonstrate the slinky in their toy department. And within 90 minutes of starting his display, the entire inventory of 400 units is sold out. The slinky is a hit, but its success is truly ensured in the 1960s when catchy TV ads begin beaming into American homes. TV advertising directly to children was key for Slinky's success in the 1960s. Especially the classic jingle that still rings in my ears from all those early Slinky commercials. What walks downstairs alone or in pairs and makes a slinkety sound. A spring, a spring, a marvelous thing. Everyone knows it's Slinky. Today, the Slinky remains one of the most popular toys on the market with over a quarter of a billion Slinkies sold around the world since its invention in 1943. It's an icon, it's got longevity, it encourages creative play. It's something that's really powerful in kind of sending adults back to their own childhood when they see or feel or hear a Slinky. For those who want to wonder at its curious history and enjoy the fantastic fun of the Slinky, curators at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, will gladly oblige. Flying ships to slinking springs. Long lost giants and unsolved crimes. These are the mysteries at the museum. First, thin strips of birch veneer were laminated, then glued together to create light, flexible, super-strong composite panels. These panels were then nailed into place on the airplane's raw birch frame, then heat was applied to mold the panels into shape. They actually put nails in to hold everything together until the glue dried and the heat was able to cure the glue and the shape was able to take effect. But this process required an enormous number of nails. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 